0: Witnessing a front three quarter view of two adults sharing a tender moment. Hello and welcome to Front Three Quarter View. I am James and I am your host. It's been a very long time since I did a Front Three Quarter View podcast, and I've really missed being able to talk to you and being able to share all my crazy and sometimes very odd Twin Peaks theories with you and it's so exciting to be back. I started this podcast last year, Um, it was just over a year ago that I posted the last episode and unfortunately because of various reasons the podcast sort of became something I wasn't able to do for a while but I am so excited to be back because I've really missed sharing these and talking to Other Twin Peaks fans and I don't know how often I'll be able to post these and how often I'll be able to release them but I'm hoping I'm gonna be able to release episodes fairly regularly um, certainly as often as I'm able to and yeah I'm just really excited to be back and to be able to talk all things Twin Peaks again so whether you're brand new to front three-quarter view or whether you've been here since the very beginning, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode, and the hopefully many episodes to come. I've got some really exciting things planned, and I can't wait to share them with you. So, for my first podcast back, I am going to do something a little bit different. I've not done this before, Um, and I'm really interested to see how it's going to turn out. I am going to do a commentary of one of the Twin Peaks series, two episodes, Lonely Souls. This is the episode where Laura Palmer's killer is revealed. I'm going to press play, I'm going to watch it all the way through, I'm not going to skip any of it. I'm going to leave the mic running for the whole thing, and then I'm going to share the whole unedited commentary with you. So... There may be silences if I'm engrossed in the action, or if I don't have anything to say, but the timing of me watching the episode will match up to you watching the episode alongside it. So that's probably how this episode is best listened to, putting lonely souls up um, and pressing play the same time that I press play, and I'm going to tell you when that is. So hopefully I think of some interesting stuff to say, um, and I hope you enjoy listening to my insights. I'm really interested to see what kind of things I pick up on, being able to talk about a whole episode, and also being able to talk about it in real time as well. So, this is your chance, get your episodes at the ready, and then we're gonna find out who Laura Palmer's killer is. So, I'm going to press play on lonely souls in three, two, one, play okay so i mean we start with what is one of the most iconic title sequences of all time isn't it and it's kind of odd that a lot of it is just this wheel spinning around and cutting some things the first time i watched the full title sequence i was very bewildered by it I'm, uh, I'm from Britain, and so when I watch TV series, generally they have quite short title sequences. And Twin Peaks, even though this episode has the condensed one, some episodes of Twin Peaks have the really long one. Um, and it's the whole putting the credits on the start rather than at the end is something that British TV doesn't really do. The credits generally come at the end and you might get one or two names in a title sequence or maybe you'll get like six or eight names coming up at the bottom of the screen. But generally it's while the action is happening. But to have the whole of the main cast appear both in the title sequence and then over the first bit of action of the episode, um, I think it definitely took some getting used to actually. Uh, someone who'd grown up with it not really being like that. So the episode before this, I realised when I was re-watching it, uh, I've watched them from the start all the way through, but I realised that I just love this episode, uh, or the episode before this. Like, Lynch is in it and he's great, and there's the scene with the one-armed man, and here he is repeating everything that he said at the end of the last episode, in what is an amazing cliffhanger. Um, the, I think the last episode... Is that the one with the storm and Lucy has this amazing scene with Dick and there's some there's some really interesting um, there's some really interesting scenes in the last one and I really loved watching it. I just think Gordon Cole is such a fun addition. He's so great in this series, and I love that the last episode and obviously this episode and the two after this they have a real energy about them. There's this real sense of you get this idea that like something is something is coming, um, and like Gordon turns up and then Alfred comes back and there's that scene at the. Um, at the opener of the uh, sort of the last episode of the Laura Palmer arc where the FBI agents are walking with Harry and they've just found the body and they're walking through from the falls and there's this sense of oh my god like Cooper wants 24 hours to solve this you know something big is coming and then now we're in the great northern So I was, I was, because I was talking and I missed who directed this, but obviously this one's David Lynch. um, And written by Mark Frost as well, so. I love all these, like, when they started putting all these strange things in the Great Northern, like the Barbershop Quartet and the beauty show and the people bouncing balls and the brass band in the lift. There's such a, this is actually something I've discovered on this rewatch. There's such a warmth, despite the darkness there's such a warmth to this show and its environment and its world and it really pulls you in and it's just it's just so comforting to watch and that's odd isn't it because you know obviously it's an incredibly dark story and In Britain, certainly, there's this huge tradition of murder mystery stories being this sort of like cosy crime genre of like Miss Marple and things like that, and sort of countryside detective stories. Death in Paradise now is one of those as well. And they're so popular, despite the fact they're about things that are so dark. And there's this warmth and cosiness to them, like this safety, even though they're dealing with often what horrific themes. And I think Twin Peaks exudes that warmth and it has this surreal tone to it that just draws you in. So we just miss there Ben Horn walking along and the one-armed man reacting to him. And even in that first shot of Ben you get where he's striding down the corridor, you really get this sense that like, Ben's not really been like that before. He's never really been that proactive. He's always like smoking his cigar, getting other people to do his work for him. But... You know, in that scene Ben Horn is determined and that gives an odd tone to Ben and it really makes you suspect him just before the killer is revealed. Especially as well, obviously when the one armed man reacts to him. And then we have the scene where we're in Laura Palmer's house now, um, but I'm a couple of, I'm talking a couple of scenes behind because I keep chatting too much. I've got too much to say. Um, but we're in Laura Palmer's house now, but that scene with, with Hawke where he finds Harold's body, it's really horrible, isn't it? It's just really quite. I know I was talking over that scene saying how comforting and cozy the series is, but in fact, This episode is the episode that jolts you out of that cosiness, isn't it? This episode is really, really hard to watch. And for all the cosy crime, surreal, drawing you in warmth of this world that is created, actually, it's this episode that challenges it. Like, it's the discovery of Harold's body, it's the scene at the end in this house, And Louis Armstrong as well. I think, is there a reference in Room to Dream where Lynch is talking about his love of Louis Armstrong? I love the fact that It's a Wonderful World is playing. And everything, it's kind of like a mockery of that cosiness, isn't it? Like everything here seems so settled despite all the things that have happened. Maddie's saying, you know, she misses having a life of her own. And that's an interesting point, because Maddie and Laura kind of become a bit indistinguishable in this series. Like, she has a bit of an identity crisis. Her hair changes and she looks more like Laura. Whereas in series one, I feel like she's a lot more distinct. But without the glasses and with different hair, she is very Laura-like. And it's almost... And the character talks about that in her scene last episode with James. She says, you know, I have to go and basically stop being Laura. Um... And, you know, Leland says she's got her own life. I think this is the episode that really like hits home as well for Donna and James because I mean they've got themselves involved with Harold and with Maddie and you know it really is quite hard on them it's no wonder James goes off on his motorbike really You have that interesting, when Cooper's getting the note off of Harold's body as well, that very sort of Lynchian sense of darkness and comedy side by side, making you feel a bit uncomfortable. Again, this whole episode is going to challenge the point I made about how warm and cosy Twin Peaks feels. And I think it certainly has been that, and it certainly gets to that point again, but there's something so dark and interesting and challenging and terrible about this episode. And now we're with Bobby and Shelley. This is basically the start of where everything goes wrong because you have that great scene in the last episode where you've got um, you've got the the party and um, Shelley and Bobby just seem so sort of young and in love. This is where they stop. Kind of like, it's almost like an injection of realism into it, and I wonder whether that's why... Because I think there's a lot of conversation often, or there has been in the past, about how when Lynch sort of... Has more creative involvement in the series... There's this idea that Twin Peaks sort of writes itself, and I think it... um, I don't agree with the idea that it writes itself or it becomes closer to sort of what its original conception was in the pilot. But there is a a dose of both realism and surrealism I always wonder what this must have been like for the man that played Leo. I know that sort of recently he, the last few years, he's sort of come back and done conventions and things, but I, I wonder what it was like for him playing Leo in a very, very, very different role to how that character is in the first series. I don't know if we do see Bobby and Shelly argue all that much before this scene, actually. Bobby there summarising the whole of series one. Leo was in with a lot of stuff with a lot of different people. That's a description of Josie as well. I'm finally on this rewatch beginning to understand the Josie arc and who she is to who and what deal she's made with which people. Oh, Shelly and Bobby are just so good. They're just. And so interesting as well. In the return. And I mean, I've spoken before about Bobby's storyline, I think, and the places that it goes. And it is absolutely fascinating. Bobby is probably one of the most interesting characters in terms of like how he grows and how he changes. Sorry, there's a moment of silence here, I'm just watching this scene. I just gasp because I know what this scene is. Oh, just ordering Ben. She's so good in this scene. This is just such a good confrontation. And that's such a, like, the revelation that Audrey was prudent. That's such a heavy, awful confrontation. And it's odd as well seeing Ben in this position where he's sort of being caught out. It's not something that happens. And Sherilyn Fenn in this scene is just yeah, no spot on. Sherilyn Fenn season two arc, I think once she's out of one-eyed Jacks, it goes to some really, really interesting places. Oh, that's such a hard here moment. well like the revelation that like Ben slept with Laura is just it feels like a really like straightforward hard-hitting answer in a show that doesn't always give them and is quite elusive about a lot of answers that really stands out As being a real payoff to what's set up in the pilot. And then Ben has just revealed. That he was in love with Laura. And has a picture of her on his desk. And that's really interesting as well. That's. I just. I mean how do you even react to that? Does it come out of left field? This revelation that you know, Ben was in love with Laura, and what does that even mean? And it's just so uncomfortable, and it just reveals so many things about Ben. It's, I mean, it's just an incredibly, like, hard-hitting scene, really, and so well done. And then this scene with Norma and Shelley is just absolutely heartbreaking, and the sweetest thing ever, because the thing that I really love is that in a lot of series, you would have characters who worked in a diner, or a shop, or behind a bar. And, you know, I, I write, and I'm guilty of this in my own writing. Um, and shows that I love do things like this, but those jobs are always seen as something to go off and do better than. They're places to move on from. But Shelly's literally just said, like, I love you, I love working here there's a real element to that where you sort of think Shelley doesn't want to leave she doesn't think lowly because she's doing this job this job is the job she wants to do she's still there in the return she she's upset at the idea of leaving Norma and the double R and like the, the job isn't seen to be one that's to be ashamed of or to be looked down at it's held up as like Basically, the epitome of working in Twin Peaks is working at the double R, even more so than working at the sheriff's station. Like, you'd want to work at the double R, wouldn't you? You'd want to work with Norma. And I've seen things about, you know, it's interesting that, obviously, a lot of female characters in Lynch's um, dramas specifically go through a lot of really difficult things. And Norma isn't exempt from that, but she is often separate to that And that's really interesting as well, and, you know, I need to talk with someone um, who can speak to that much more clearly than I can about Norma's role in Lynch's drama. Um, But I find it so enjoyable and so important that this job at the diner is held up to be something so special and to be treasured and to be loved because it's not looked down on and i think that's so wonderful and yeah the scene with shelly spot on And now Nadine is here, and I am such a supporter of this Nadine arc. I'm really glad she gets to do something else other than just talk about curtains. Like, I just... And again, this is another one of those scenes that's like... It starts off as really comedic, and fun, and odd. And then Nadine breaks the glass, and it's like, oh my god, that's actually quite horrible. I think this Nadine arc is good because it allows us to see more about their relationship I think we understand her and Ed more and Ed's allegiance almost to Nadine and also the fact that he feels trapped by her and then also the fact that as this series goes on she matures and lets him go and then it's all the more heartbreaking when she can't do that and it's all the more amazing when she can do that in the return and you having this plot means you understand what their relationship is really like sort of deep down the traps that they've fallen into and it's literally resetting this so everything that played out between Ed and Nadine and Norma in the past when they were at school the story that Ed tells in the first episode of this season we're seeing that play out just in a very different way Um, by basically resetting Nadine's age. And, oh, we've just had the glass breaking. That is really quite horrible. I think if you probably had to sum up Twin Peaks in a scene, maybe you'd pick this one. You'd go from, like, Norma and Shelley having a heart-to-heart, the comedy of Nadine thinking that she's still in high school, the awkwardness of their relationship with Norma, and then Nadine smashing a glass and like blood pouring down her hand. And the music still being kind of quirky and almost a bit jaunty. And then there's a very odd and uncomfortable kiss between Ed and Nadine. That probably says a lot about what the show is like it's a mix of all those things and yet it can't help but draw you in and the fact as well that it just lingers on this and then um, works really well and if this commentary is successful and i'm really enjoying doing it if people are um If people enjoy this commentary, then I'm definitely going to do some more on some other well-known and not so well-known episodes. So there'll be some other Lynch episodes, but there'll also be some of the more what we could probably call obscure episodes. Um, And I'd love to do some more commentaries like this as well. So Mike is back. Um, I find it fascinating that Mike tends to turn up in Lynch things. It is. I do wonder if it's got that sort of thing about Lynch's vision of Twin Peaks is the pilot, as he has said himself. Um, You know, Mike is part of that. And his relationship and friendship with Bobby is part of that. I've also recently re-watched Firewalk With Me, which there'll be a podcast on later. Because I've had a very interesting sort of journey with Firewalk With Me and my opinions on it. But I've never ever watched it in the middle of watching the series before, and it does kind of show you characters like Bobby in a different light. I find myself thinking as well, the more I watch Bobby in this sort of run-through. Of like, he's such a complex character, because he comes off at first as basically a bit of a dick. But he's got this sort of real heart and also vulnerability to him. And there's this whole conversation with Jacoby about whether Laura, you know, did she exploit that? You know, could you even say that she exploited that? You know, is that a fair thing to say? probably not but the relationship between bobby and laura is an interesting one and i think both both of them especially amazing considering how little screen time laura gets are actually really in-depth characters oh and then the return of diane i just love it when diane tapes pop up that's just i've not listened to the diane book um cooper's Diane Tapes. There's a Carl McLaughlin recording of it. And I'm desperate to listen to it. And I haven't got around to it yet. Again this fits in. Very well with Firewall with me. And then we have this really interesting thing. Which I'm definitely going to go into on another podcast. Because there's a lot to talk about around this. But. Bob is described as a friend of uh, Laura's father. And Laura's father says that he knew him from the house next to the empty lot. Something so creepy about the empty lot um, when he was a child. So there's a lot of interesting things circulating around Leland and Bob and Laura and how that all ties in. So that's definitely something I'll go into a little bit more on a later podcast. And I just want to talk here about Cooper and Audrey. Um, I don't know, Audrey does come out of that one-eyed jack experience change. There is a, a sort of something more solemn, something more like mature about her in like an awful way that she's had to go through this experience in order to come out of it and like grow up probably earlier than she would have done. And it's this experience that kind of has encouraged that. But those scenes with Audrey helping to solve the case, you know, I just think Audrey Audrey helping with the case is just great. It's like that scene when she walks in and she meets Denise. I just love moments like that. Audrey Horn should have been an FBI agent, and that is the, that is the—that is my opinion about Audrey. That's where I stand. Um, I think has the picture of Laura gone from his desk? I think it might have done. Is the picture of Audrey in the same frame as the picture of Laura? Because everyone sort of says, oh, it, you know, the picture just appears out of nowhere, which is odd. And I never realized it disappeared just as quickly as it arrived. That's a shame. Actually. Um, but oh why does Ben have a picture on his desk? So weird. Oh, and this is one of those FBI scenes when they're like, you know that they're coming to a conclusion and they're going to arrest Ben. There's this real sense of like, right now we're heading towards something. Cooper and Ben are interesting. I feel like Cooper doesn't, I think he tries to give people that he can, like the benefit of the doubt. And his attitude to Ben is just very, very cold and he doesn't really have a lot of time for him. When they're exchanging the money for Audrey's hostage situation, like, Cooper just treats him with this kind of disdain. I'm getting very distracted by this scene. This is another example of Ben being like, I'm going out for a sandwich, that's great. like, Ben isn't really like this the rest of the time. I think you really start to think that it could be him. I think, you know, the script is very aware that it's positioning Ben as the main suspect. And it really, and everyone really plugs in to make that a possibility. And there are sort of conflicting accounts of how many people knew. And when people found out. About sort of who the killer was. I know that an alternative ending was filmed with Ben. And it is very convincing that it could be him and then we cut to this i've, I've literally got goosebumps already Ah, oh, just you, you're just this scene in the palmer house you're just suddenly aware that you're in something very different sarah palmer crawling down those stairs there's just there's something about i don't know how odd this will sound but there's something about the camera being so close to like the carpet like when you're like growing up as a kid and you're in like your family home and you're just like playing on the ground and suddenly the carpet is this like you know it's like the floor is lava the carpet is like the backdrop for all these adventures with action figures and all these games that you play it's one of those things that's so like you do really like know and get to know every single aspect of your house when you grow up in it. And I think lowering the camera to that point, you've got Sarah crawling, like gripping the carpet, seeing the carpet that close. That's a real sense of this is something very familiar and something very surreal and awful and foreboding all at the same time. And it's that horror in suburbia thing that Lynch does so well, but it really comes across in that scene. It's just so unnerving. And again, oh, I've just remembered what's coming. I've just remembered what's coming. Oh, it's the most spine-chilling stuff from here. The Log Lady is just... I'm starting to work on a piece of creative writing that I'm thinking is going to be about the Log Lady. And in fact, there's already something written from her perspective as well, a short story on my blog. I'll post the link in the bio to this podcast. I was, it was a piece of writing I was really proud of as well. Um, the Log Lady is just... My partner, whenever she's hit, whenever she appears on screen, um, he just says, "Bay, mine. The Log Lady is just an incredible character. And she are oh, just turning up at this point, and Cooper and Harry taking her so seriously, in a way that they've not always done. Really, like, gives her this sense of importance. Cooper takes some time to warm to her and take her seriously, definitely, I think. Oh, and this scene with Pete and Tojimura. What do people think about this Pete and Tojimora scene when it first aired? It's so odd. Like, how surprising was it when Catherine appeared? How surprising was it that Tojimora just kissed Pete quite aggressively out of nowhere? I mean there's a lot to talk about revolving around Catherine dressing up as Tojimora and obviously something that now is considered to be incredibly problematic and rightly so, and is problematic when a similar trick is used in the return. It is, you know, it's it's hard because it's one of those things that's uncomfortable to watch and that you shouldn't make excuses for really as a plot device. Um, you know, hiding Catherine and, then, Catherine and then having her reveal is great, The way that it's done, as we watch it now, obviously, our perspective and experience of it is very different. And then we return to Sarah. um, It's odd watching this live and sort of speaking very instinctively about things um, and sort of saying things that mm, should be discussed in a lot more depth. But there's just so much packed into every Twin Peaks episode, isn't there? You say one thing really quickly and then, bam, you move on, you have to talk about something else. And by saying that, the white horse appeared. Oh, and then we see Leland. I think, yeah, he's coming any minute. I think, yes, I can see his shadow. So Sarah seeing the white horse, almost a look of like bliss or happiness on her face. And then the fact that Leland is just there, and Sarah is passed out on the floor, and Leland is standing right by her. And it's almost that pan to like who it's gonna be, and it's Leland, and you don't think it's gonna be Leland, because he's not that kind of man. It can't really be him if he just leaves her there. But she's there, and the record has run out, and it's clicking, and Leland is just looking in the mirror. It's so unnerving because it's so unexpected, I think. And then we're in the roadhouse. Donna and James. I'm just going to take this moment to point out Julie Cruz is just incredible, isn't she? I enjoy as well that she just, like, every time she appears she just drops another track from her album. Um, And also, you know, I'm... Assuming some people who are listening to this might have seen Industrial Symphony Number no. One, that's a podcast, isn't it? That that would be a that would be a hell of a conversation to have. Industrial Symphony Number no. One, but Julie Cruz in that as well, and uh, yeah, fascinating piece of theatre. But Julie Cruz just fits this world so well, and I really love that. In a minute, Donna mimes along to her. Um, to her lyrics as a way of like getting James back and it kind of mirrors how just you is used to show the difference between sort of Maddie and Donna's affection for James and there's a really sad scene between Donna and James there about Harold and the log lady walks in with There's this sense of like futility, like they can't, they don't know anything, so all they can do is sit and wait, and when they've sat and they've waited, it's too late. Like, you kind of almost want Cooper to be more proactive, but what is there for him to do? There's just this sense that something is coming and no one knows what it is. It's like right on the other side of town in an ordinary, what appears to be an ordinary house. It's that mixing of the dark and the weird and the real, the surreal, all coming together. That's a really nicely handled scene with Donna Donna and James as well. Like, oh, there she is miming the lyrics. I like to think that no one in Twin Peaks listens to any other music except songs composed by Angelo and Julie Cruz's first album. There is no other music in Twin Peaks. That's canonical. I'm making that a thing from this point on. But Donna and James are really interesting in the fact their first conversation is about Harold. Their second conversation is about Maddie. And then they make up. And it's like... They talk about everything really simply, really sort of sparsely, and then they move on. So you really feel like you can like, when you've been in places and they're really smoky, it's like, it's like watching the scene, you almost like feel, like smell the smoke. And the transition from rocking Back Inside My Heart to The World spins as well, which is perfect here as it is in The Return. It's just amazing. And then we have the spotlight. I've got a lot to say about the spotlight in a second, but. The appearance of the giant and everything freezes, but the log lady can see him too. I've never noticed that before. And It Is Happening Again is the most chilling scene ever. That's just so... Oh. I mean, there's just so much there, isn't there, about like the construction of TV, of drama, of the scene, of narrative. And then we cut to Leland. Oh my god, and then we see it. That's it. When I watched this for the first time, I probably gasped them. We finally know who did it. And Ray Wise is just so chilling. The reflection is so good there. You still see Bob in the reflection, even when Leland's moved, even when it's just his shoulder. Oh, Jesus, the gloves are horrific. This is an incredibly difficult scene to do a commentary over. I think the spotlight is interesting because it's this sense of like theatricality, of like breaking the fourth wall. It hit the giant and Maddie runs into it. Jesus. Oh my God. And then this is... It's so violent and it's so unexpected. It almost feels slightly odd to talk through it, really. such an intense scene oh my god and fascinating how the Bob bits contrast the Leland bits how Leland is well not always but Leland is more composed Bob is this animalistic thing but they are the same person Russell T Davis, who's a writer that was well, my favourite writer, um, said in an interview about Twin Peaks that this is one of the best scenes on television and It's hard to believe really that this was on such mainstream television because it's such a difficult watch. It doesn't hold back. is just horrible the whole thing is horrible but it's compelling and it reminds you actually where this series came from you know it's about this darkness and I think seeing darkness like this so explicitly on TV is still today, to this extent, doesn't feel like it's done as powerfully as it is here. Just felt like I needed to pause while that scene finished. It's a man that looks really like Harold Smith behind the bars. This scene as well, wow, I've never seen this done so well and it's hard to explain what I don't think it's because any other drama has even done it. Like, this terrible event has happened and everyone just sort of knows that it's happened. That must have been a thing before, but it's just so effective. Like, Bobby turning round and having this sense of sadness, the waiter apologising, the giant fading away, and Julie Cruz's music coming back in. And it's almost hard, because Cooper has not gone through the same experience that we have, and he's not feeling this poignancy and this sadness that everyone else is feeling. And James doesn't really seem to be either, but Donna's reaction, Bobby's reaction... It's this sense of just overwhelming tragedy that... And, I mean... I couldn't imagine any other scene following what is one of the most intense scenes on television. It's truly a a difficult watch, isn't it? And still just as effective and horrific, no matter how many times you watch it. And I think as well, I wanted to say it while the scene was on, but wanted to let the scene play out as much as I could, that Cheryl Lee deserves every praise and just appreciation and thanks that could be, it is possible to be bestowed on an actor. Cause I mean, filming that scene, filming Firewalk With Me, you know, they're, they're just such incredibly, powerful scenes and moments and stories, and she gives her all to them. Cheryl Lee always gives her all to them and is phenomenal. And then we have the credits. It's interesting that in a lot of the ones where Lynch comes back, the credits don't go out over Laura Palmer's face. And we have it here on Cooper in the Judy Cruise music, which I think is just perfect. And then that's it. We have the Lynch and Frost item, and that is the end of the episode. So um, wow, there we go. That was my first commentary on a Twin Peaks episode, and I picked the most intense episode it was possible to pick, and. Um, feels very odd sort of sharing what is quite an emotional reaction and episode um so openly and also yeah sharing your thoughts on scenes like that is quite uh, an intense process um but I hope that you've enjoyed listening to this commentary I hope that it's pointed out some things you may not have noticed before or even just I hope that, you know, if there's bits that you've never really thought that much of, or if there's bits that you love, hopefully I've surprised you or resonated with you. You know, it's just been really lovely to actually share a fan experience over such a concentrated period of time. Um, and in the moment as well, rather than in hindsight, where, you know, it's, I mean, it's it takes a lot of preparation. Um, and you know Twin Peaks podcasts and podcasters do an amazing amount of work, you know, that goes into their thing, their their podcast, you know um, and it's weird, almost going in unprepared and it's weird watching something without that preparation and, it wasn't hard to think of things to say in the moment, but it was quite challenging at times to comment on scenes, especially like the scene where, you know, Laura's killer is revealed. Um, There's lots to say about that Maddie scene, obviously, and that is worthy of its own podcast, you know, to talk about it in hindsight, that episode would really benefit from it. But I just think that it is one of the most amazing scenes on television. Um, and it is just so indescribable really isn't it just what it is but it also reveals the, the killer reveal is so unnerving it's not something as you know as everyone knows it's not something that they wanted to do I can't imagine it not being there you know I genuinely cannot imagine the series not having that reveal. It could have had it later. Sure. It would have been just as powerful. Um, but there's something about almost like the the very like TV soap drama build-up to that revelation. This because there's something about I grew up watching British Soaps. Um and I make that distinction, I think, because there's something really inherently like British countryside-y or British suburban about, you know, our soaps. They're very, very, I mean, that's what they're there for. The very day in the life of these characters. But there's also this wonderful, like, hyperbole and exaggeratedness with soaps. And I actually think where series one of Twin Peaks kind of takes the mick a bit of soaps, I think it does its best when actually it's just embracing the soap genre and it's not taking the mick. I'm not the biggest invitation to love fan. Um, I think actually, you know, writing the series one cliffhanger like Soap Cliffhangers for Mark Frost and taking that to the pinnacle of what it can be actually works really well dramatically. Um, Because although it's a bit tongue-in-cheek, it's serious as well and it works in the drama. And these... um, Those kind of soap tendencies, whenever there's a disaster in a soap, you always get this sense that like something is coming. I mean, that's because, you know, the papers have told you everything that's going to happen, but it didn't stop it being exciting. And I think there's something about that, that this episode uses really well. And then we cut to the Palmer house and suddenly things become very different. It's not particularly soap-like It's as hard to watch as um, many scenes from Lynch films are, that scene with Leland and Maddy. I think, you know, it's interesting, I've only seen Blue Velvet once and I found it to be a very intense watch. And I've not rewatched it since because of that, frankly. And I was the same with Firewalk with Me, and it was only because I was showing it to my partner again that I got the chance to reevaluate it. And Firewalk with Me, there's still bits that I can't really watch. Um, and it's the same sort of like unflinching camera of moments in Blue Velvet in Firewalk with Me as you see in that episode. And to have that on. A TV show is amazing and that's that almost sounds like there's something lesser about TV shows and I actually, if I had to pick, I prefer TV drama over films. I watch far more TV than I watch movies and TV can do absolutely anything and it's not to say that it's taken something from films and put it in TV but actually it's to say wow, TV really can do anything and any limitations that are put on it because it's not film um, because it's just TV those limitations aren't real you can really, you know, use that form to do whatever you want and this is proof of that the return is proof of that you know, sure it's an 18 hour movie but also it's a TV show and it's a TV show doing things like part 8 that no other TV show has done it's pushing that boundary in a very different and also very similar way to how that Leland and Maddy scene is pushing the boundary. It treats its material with utter sincerity and the result of it is one of the most intense and powerful watches and scenes that you can get on TV and that I can think of off the top of my head. So that's kind of my final thought on it. Like there's some, it's just so wonderfully the music and this sickening like foreboding when the giant appears the tone of it is really quite something and it really almost feels like it comes out of the blue a bit and it catches you off guard and the result is something that has you will probably have gathered from this podcast is truly quite something so um thank you so much for listening and uh thank you for sticking to the end if you stuck to the end with me I really hope that you've enjoyed this feed uh, this sort of I suppose feedback is right, you know my reactions to what the episode is. Um, I would really like to hear your feedback. Um, if you disagree, agree, loved it, hated it, um, if you whatever experience you've had of this podcast and of this episode, I would love to hear from you so you can tweet me at Twin Peaks game. You can also tweet tweet me at Iolus Poetry, I-O-L-U-S Poetry. Um, Either of those, they're both my Twitter accounts. Um, So please tweet me your opinions. Um, This podcast will be on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and hopefully Google Podcasts as well, I think, and a few other streaming services hopefully too. Um, But you'll be able to listen to all the new episodes there. If you've never listened to an episode of Front 3 Quarter View before, thank you very much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. And if you have, welcome back. Um, And I will see you all again very soon. Thank you for listening.